Has anyone gone and seen the new James Bond film yet? I know there's at least a couple. A few people willing to admit. Um, apparently it goes for over two and a half hours, two hours and 43 minutes. So I haven't seen it yet. I used to always sit down and watch James Bond films with my dad. So I'll probably go and watch this one, I think. But imagine if you'd gone to see something like the new Bond film, No Time to Die, and just as you got to the end, the final chase, everything's exploding, Bond's running out of whatever building's about to blow up, and Daniel Craig, I'm sure, playing Bond, defeats the bad guys and wins the girl yet again. How would it be if just near the end, at about the 2 hour 20, 2 hour 25 minute, everything just goes blank? Screen shuts down, the sound goes off, power goes off, and you never learn how it ends. You'd feel a bit ripped off, wouldn't you? We've been focusing um, through Acts uh, these past weeks almost exclusively on Paul. For the last 15 chapters of, of, or so, since chapter 13, he's been the main character Luke has been writing about. Every chapter has featured Paul. His ministry, his travels, there's been plots to kill him. Uh, he stood before governors and kings. Last week he survived a storm and a shipwreck. And now, having appealed to Caesar back in chapter 25, he's finally got to Rome and waiting his turn to stand before Caesar and defend his case. But as we get to this final chapter of Luke's writing of Acts, he finally gets to Rome. We don't hear anything about his standing before Caesar. We never get to hear Paul defend his case before the emperor. We never get to hear what happens to him, actually, in the end. Is he set free? Is he imprisoned for the rest of his life? Is he killed during this imprisonment? Executed by the Romans? None of that appears in this final chapter of Acts. The stories and tradition of the early church is that, yes, Paul eventually did die at the hand of Roman authorities, but probably after this two-year term of imprisonment, uh, sometime later. But why does Luke almost tease us and lead us on all the way up to Rome with Paul only to leave us hanging at the very end and failing really to finish uh, with regards to Paul. I want to suggest to you the reason why Luke does that is because Paul is not his main issue. Paul's not the main concern for Luke even as he's been writing about him for all these chapters. Uh, not Paul, not Peter, not Philip. They all feature at some point in Acts as many others do but Luke's actually writing not to tell us about these men, but to tell us about Christ, to tell us about the ministry of Christ. This is week 36 of our series through the book of Acts. 36 weeks. You've held in there. Well done. Um, but can you remember how the book of Acts started, how Luke started this letter to his good friend Theophilus? This is how we began. In the first book, O Theophilus, in his Gospel of Luke, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So he wrote in the book of Acts, in the gospel, everything that Jesus began to do and teach. And now as he writes the book of Acts, he's writing about all that Jesus continued to do and teach as the risen Lord through the apostles and by the power of the Spirit. And Acts 28 serves as the end to this book of Acts, but also the end to Paul's, uh, to, sorry, to Luke's sort of two-volume series, writing to Theophilus. But it's not the end of Paul's life or the outcome of his trial that interests Luke the most. 
That's not the climax of the story here. Even, that's what, even though it seems that's what we've been pointing towards, that's what we're heading towards, it's actually the final verse, really, of Acts 28, these final few words that tells us where Luke has wanted us to get to. From verse 28, Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will this, That's how Luke describes the gospel, how Paul describes the gospel. This salvation of God. And it's been sent to the Gentiles. He's been speaking to the Jews. Many of them have rejected it. The door is now open for the Gentiles. He lived there, Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense. He's imprisoned. He's got to pay his own way through the support of others. But he was also free enough to have visitors come. And he welcomed all who came to him. And when they came to him, what did he do? The final verse, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That's the final two words in the ESV and in the Greek. The climax, the end of the story, like all good Bond films and other great ventures, is that the story actually goes on. The gospel continues to be proclaimed. There's more to the story. The hero lives. Not Paul, but Jesus. Jesus Christ, he lives, he's risen and ascended. He is Lord and word about him and his gospel and the kingdom of God continues to be proclaimed throughout the world without hindrance. That's what Luke has been showing us through the book of Acts. The spreading of the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the world. That's what he's been saying all through these 28 chapters. And that's what we need to hear and embrace and I trust we've been hearing throughout these 36 weeks. And today as we finish, I want us to hear the word of God continues to be proclaimed with power, without hindrance in our day. We've seen and heard through this series the gospel, the power of God for salvation and the truth concerning Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Now reigning as Lord, been going out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. It's penetrated hard hearts. It's transformed lives like Paul. It's transcended cultural barriers. And it's worth asking, has it actually done that for us? 36 weeks through 28 chapters. Has the truth of Christ penetrated our hearts? as we've been hearing it week after week? Has it overcome the barriers and obstacles that we might put in the place, in place to resist the word of God and the light of Christ shining in our hearts? Has the salvation of God transformed us and affected our lives? Has the promise of forgiveness and the grace of God in Jesus Christ brought times of refreshing to our souls? as we heard earlier in the book of Acts. Have we heard the call of Christ and the command of the gospel to repent and believe? Or is there some hindrance, some dullness, callousness in our hearts that has caused us to hear all this, but not receive it and not respond to it? To see, but not perceive You could blame the preachers. Maybe we haven't been bold enough or clear enough or enthusiastic enough or relevant enough. Maybe that's so when none of us are perfect either. But when Jesus told the parable of the sower, the sower actually wasn't all that good a sower. I don't know if you know that. 
Most farmers don't go around scattering their seed wherever it wants to fall. That sower just threw it quite wastefully, quite sloppily on any soil that was there, on the paths, the hard soil, the good soil, the bad soil. But what's the message at the end of the parable? He who has ears, let him hear. Take care then how you hear. And it's actually how the book of Acts finishes, isn't it? A similar warning. Paul's been speaking to the Jews there in Rome. First thing he wants to do is speak with them. And some of them believe, but others disbelieve. They have a disagreement. And he finishes off by quoting Isaiah. Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. Their hearts have grown hard and callous. We didn't have it read to us. It was uh, going to be a long reading if we had all of Acts 28. But the first half has Paul, uh, after that almost fatal sea voyage and the shipwreck we heard of last week, uh, they land on um, the island of Malta before they get to Rome. The crew and the prisoners eventually get there. Uh, Not the ship, but the rest of all the people do. And they're treated with kindness by the island folk. And uh, in their time there, uh, Paul was bitten by a snake early on, a deadly viper. It's interesting, you know, they've just gone through storm and shipwreck and Paul, through his encouragement and obedience to God, has saved the whole ship, really, all the people. And even when they land, it starts to rain. You think they'd be worried about rain after all of that. But it's Paul who goes out and gathers sticks for the fire. Still humble in his service, isn't he? Uh, But as he does that, a viper comes out, warmed by the fire, and bites Paul. And the islanders think, ah, this is an omen. He must be a murderer or something like that. Uh, He might have survived the shipwreck, but justice, God, a God to them, or maybe just a sense of karma of some sort, has had its way with him in the end. Only for Paul not to actually have any ill effect from the viper. And so very quickly from from being a murderer in their minds, he's now a god. Pretty sort of fickle way of thinking about someone, isn't it? They've jumped to conclusions very quickly and they change their conclusion very quickly in their superstition. A good reminder perhaps for us not to jump too quickly to conclusions about people and when things happen to them. Jesus taught his own disciples that lesson on more than one occasion as well. Paul ends up visiting and praying with or for the island chief's father who was sick and he was healed and then many others on the island are healed as well. Um, But it's interesting, there's no mention of any proclamation of the gospel or people coming to faith here on Malta. Makes us wonder, maybe there was a language barrier. These were a Phoenician um, background that Luke calls them barbarians or natives, which is really just saying they didn't know Greek. They didn't speak their language. Um, Or maybe Luke didn't include it for some other reason or it just didn't happen. I'd be surprised if Paul didn't try proclaiming the gospel there, (laughs) knowing what we know of Paul. But maybe there weren't any converts or maybe for some reason Luke just hasn't included it. Maybe it's simply because all that happens here in the first half of the chapter is really just a segue for Paul to finally get to Rome. Which is where Paul actually writes many of his letters. These two years of imprisonment actually give him time and space, travelling everywhere as he has been. He's now in one place for two years, in prison, housebound. People can come to him, but he writes Ephesians, Colossians, probably Philippians, 2 Timothy and Philemon. So what a rich time. He hasn't wasted his time spent there in prison, has he? And when he arrives here in Rome, we learn pretty quickly that the Gospels actually already got there before him. 
We pick that up from Paul's letter to Rome. It's the very next page of my Bible, Acts 28, goes straight to Romans 1. But actually, Romans was written before, the letter of Romans was written before Luke, uh, Paul got to Rome. I'll get their names right eventually. Uh, he writes in verse 8 of chapter 1 of Romans, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. He's writing this before he's got to Rome, before he's met anyone there. God and the gospel of Christ didn't need Paul, the great apostle, to establish the church there in Rome. It's already happening. It's wonderful. Through someone else, through some other means. But Paul still is eager to get there to preach the gospel, to share with them some gift, to reap some harvest there and for some mutual encouragement that he would be blessed by them and they would be blessed by him. And when some of these Roman believers come, they've heard that Paul is finally going to arrive, they hear that he's coming, they meet him as he docks there in, um, where is it, that they first land? I should use my notes more, Petulio, that word in verse 13. Um, he thanked God and took courage. The believers are here, there are believers here and they've actually come, they've heard about him, they're going to support him, they welcome him. They've travelled some distance to get there. But from the moment he actually gets to Rome itself, what does Paul do? Well, when in Rome, what are you meant to do? Do as the Romans do. Not Paul. After a couple of days, that's all he took to recover from his travels. The first thing he does is preach the gospel. Proclaims Jesus Christ. He actually calls the Jews of the place. He can't go out, so he asks them to come and gather where he is. And he proclaims to them the kingdom of God and explains to them about Jesus from the law and the prophets, from the Old Testament scriptures. The hope of Israel. He explains to him why he's there, how he's got there, what's been happening, but mainly who Jesus is, their long-waited Messiah. He's greatly encouraged to be welcomed by these Christians, but what he's really keen to do is actually speak the gospel to those who haven't yet received Christ. And as was his custom, he goes first to the Jews. He's done that all the way along and expounds to them about the kingdom of God. The Jews he speaks to, they haven't heard anything from the Jews back in Jerusalem concerning Paul, their threats and their plots to kill him. They haven't reached Rome. In fact, they've heard nothing against Paul whatsoever. But they have heard about what they call this sect, these Christians. And they know that uh, these, these Christians have been spoken against everywhere. So they've got a somewhat sceptical view from the outset, but they're also eager to hear Paul's views regarding it all. And in just a few verses, Luke sums it up and tells us really what's been happening all the way through Acts as Paul's been proclaiming the gospel. Some believed and others didn't. We've heard some great stories of conversion, haven't we? Cornelius and his household the Ethiopian eunuch on this chariot with Philip running along and Paul himself on the road to Damascus. We've heard great stories of healing and reviving of life. But there's also been many occasions through Acts where people don't believe, where there's opposition, persecution, they actually chase Paul down in some places and try to stop him and kill him. There has and there always will be opposition to the gospel. There will be a rejection for those that, from those that hear it. But with that, there'll also be the reception of the gospel. Those who receive it with faith and joy. And in this case, Paul concludes, just as he has elsewhere in the past, that when his fellow Jews reject the gospel, even though some have believed, 
when the Jewish faith as a whole reject Christ, he sees that as the door being opened for him to share the gospel with the Gentiles there in Rome. And Acts really finishes on that note. The Jews on the whole have failed to recognise the coming of their promised Messiah. They fail to recognise and receive the fulfilment of their long-awaited hope in Jesus Christ, or Jesus as the Christ. They don't accept him as that. And Paul quotes from Isaiah to show this is not the first time God's people have rejected his word to them. And so because of their hard hearts, God keeps them from seeing and believing. This people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. And from Isaiah, God's actually telling Isaiah at that point, I want you to go, the people have done this, but I want you to go and tell them the gospel so that they will hear and not understand, they will see and not perceive. And Paul, at the sound of that door opening for him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, he says to them, to the Jews, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And as we read elsewhere, and just as we know and experience, the same can be said for the Gentiles too, can't it? There are many who hear the gospel and believe it, and many who hear it and reject it. And so in turn, God himself shuts those who reject him. He shuts them up to their own unbelief. And I don't know how you feel when you read those verses, 26, the, the, verse, the quote from Isaiah, and hear those things, how God actually shuts people up in their unbelief. He raises some big questions for us, I think. It does for me. It did for those who heard him here in Rome. Questions regarding God's sovereignty, his purposes... How does anyone turn to God and ultimately be saved? And why would God, who we read elsewhere, commands all people to repent and desires all people everywhere to be saved, why would he blind their eyes so they won't see? So they won't turn and he heal them? Paul's actually very helpfully explained that elsewhere in the New Testament, something of this mystery. For example, in 2 Thessalonians 2, he says this, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception. So there's an enemy out there, there's opposition, there's a, one who is scheming. But he comes with that wicked deception for those who are perishing. They're already perishing. Why? Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion. Because of their unbelief, because they refuse to love the truth, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Instead of loving the truth, they love wickedness. Instead of loving God, they love themselves. It's clear in the Isaiah quote here that the deaf and the blind state of God's chosen people, their stubborn hearts, is a result of their own hardness, their own unbelief, their callous hearts. So hard and dull, one commentator puts it, they've become impervious to the gospel. That doesn't take away anything from the power of the gospel, but it tells you just how hard the heart has become against God 
they have allowed themselves, this commentator says, to become deaf and blind for fear that they might hear and see the disturbing word of God and so receive healing from God. Why would anyone be reluctant to receive that? Well, John 3, 16 and beyond tells us that when the light of the gospel shines, what does it do? Exposes the deeds done in the heart when the light shines in the darkness. And if we receive that, we recognise our sins are exposed, they can be forgiven in the mercy of God and the blood of Jesus Christ. Or we can run away and say, I don't want anyone to see that and reject the light that shines in our hearts. We're going to do a series following that Acts now as we head up to Christmas, this Advent series on the light shining in the darkness. It's part of that dynamic that's happening. Because God's word... This commentator Howard Marshall writes, God's word brings with it the diagnosis of sin, which is painful to hear and accept, but at the same time it wounds in order to heal. But once a person deliberately refuses that word, there comes a point when he's deprived of the capacity to receive it. It's a stern warning, he writes, to those who trifle with the gospel. But it's also, I think, a strong encouragement to those of us who do believe. Because it should give us all the more thanks for the grace of God that we've received. That he's actually shone the light of his glory and his grace into our hearts. And he has opened our eyes that we might receive it with faith. That we might receive Christ. He's softened our hard hearts. And replaced them with hearts of flesh. Now there's a divine mystery at work in all of that. And you can read tomes of books on it if you want to if you want a little bit more explanation or um, thoughts about it um, last year I spent five weeks with a Thursday morning group down the hill um, in Romans 9 to 11 where Paul addresses some of these things you can look them up on sermon audio and have a listen but in short Israel's rejection which is what Paul's talking there in Romans 9 to 11 Israel's rejection of the gospel doesn't mean that God's word has failed that God's word is weak doesn't mean that at all It does mean that not all ethnic Israel are the Israel of God. They don't all share the faith of Abraham. God's purpose of election still stands. His promise and call are effective. His word goes out and fulfills the very thing he sent it to do. It always does. So we might cry, well, God's being unfair and unjust in all of that. But if we cry out for justice, we better be careful because justice would mean condemnation for all apart from the cross it's mercy we need to cry out for anyone who is saved it's all gift it's all gift god will have mercy on whom he has mercy and compassion on whom he has compassion and that shows us that salvation depends not on us but on god who are we clay vessels that we are to tell the potter what he should be doing It is a mystery. Paul says that. All the more when we realise God's people, the Israelites, the Jews, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the promises, the giving of the law, and still they reject Christ. But in the end, in all that mystery and all the questions that it raises, every time Paul speaks about these things in Romans and Ephesians and elsewhere, you know how Paul responds? (laughs) He responds with wonder and awe and praise to God. The end of Romans 9 to 11, he says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, 
How inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counsellor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Great mystery, isn't it? But none of that mystery and none of the unbelief or the chains that Paul wears, none of that stops Paul from preaching the gospel, the salvation of God, the power of God for salvation. He's not discouraged, he's determined, all the more, willing to endure anything and everything for the sake of the elect. Paul lives there in Rome for two years under this prison guard, house arrest, possibly chained at all times to a guard who would have been um, changing shifts every four or six hours. But he's given a lot of freedom, able to have visitors, proclaiming the gospel all the time with all boldness and without hindrance. One of the letters that Paul wrote while he was in prison here, 2 Timothy, he writes this to Timothy, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. We need to hear that today. We need to rejoice in that today. That God's word is not chained. Whatever restrictions, whatever resistance we might hear and feel, God's word is not bound. I think it was Hudson Taylor who said, God's work, when it's done in God's way, will never lack God's resources. God's work done in God's way never lacks God's resources. Nothing can thwart the purposes of God. Job knew that. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours will be thwarted. Nothing can hinder the persuasive power of the gospel. I was at the Bible College AGM. I got a new face mask um, with Bible College SA on it. There you go. Um, I was there last week and they were saying this year they've got more graduates. We've got one of them here in that. More graduates than they've had for a long time, over 30 graduates. 30 people equipped, encouraged and eager to be in gospel ministry. God's word is not bound. I spoke to the wife of a man dying with cancer just yesterday. She knew the Lord was sustaining them both and he will right to the end. He was with them and they have the hope of glory to look forward to. The hope of Christ is not hindered, is it? I was at a wedding yesterday too, with only a handful of believers in the room. But still the word of God went out. And even just the the marriage itself is a proclamation of the profound mystery of Christ and his church. And his word never returns empty. You might feel weak and weary in your life, in your faith, your sharing of the gospel, but the word of God is not weak or weary. It is powerful. It is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. You might feel discouraged by the unbelief in the world and the resistance to the gospel and rejection and some of the restrictions that are being placed around us at times. Paul had all of that and more. But he was actually encouraged and he willing to endure anything for the sake of the elect. 
You might feel like our world and our culture is moving more and more away from God and the gospel and instead is tightening the noose around our necks, squeezing the gospel out of us, restricting the preaching of the gospel. But the word of God is not bound. And even those actions, even those things that are being enforced in various states and around the world, that's not chaining God up. That's actually God still at work, handing the world, those who want to suppress the truth, handing them over to their sin and unbelief. Even as his word is rejected, it doesn't fail to achieve the purpose he sent it to do. It will convict this world of sin and righteousness and judgment by the power of the Spirit. And not only is God's word not bound, it never fails, never fails to accomplish what he sends it to do. That's what Isaiah tells us. Always fulfills the very purpose God sent it out to achieve. Which is why I think Paul writes... Again, in 2 Timothy, therefore, because even though he's in chains, the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. As I said earlier, Luke doesn't tell us what happens to Paul at the end of his life. I've told you what tradition and church history tells us, that he was executed by the Romans, but not here. Instead, Luke leaves us with these final words. We're not left with the martyrdom and suffering of one of Christ's followers, Paul the Apostle. We're actually left with a proclamation of the gospel, with all boldness and without hindrance. It's as though Luke and Paul together have taken up the mantle of John the Baptist and said, Christ must increase, I must decrease. Spotlight's been on Paul for a long time, but you know what? It's actually really been on Christ the whole time. And as I finish my letter to Theophilus, I don't want you to look at Paul. I want you to look at Christ and see what he's doing and how his word is not bound, but is going out to the nations. I wonder what that word, the same word, has accomplished here among us over 36 weeks in the book of Acts. Whether we see it or not, whether we can feel it or not, I actually trust it has achieved the very purpose for what God sent it to do. Us pastors and preachers need to preach and pastor by faith, not by sight. Trusting that God by his spirit is working in our lives and in our hearts. But as we preach the word week by week, as we finish a series, I can be confident that God's word has accomplished what he set it out to do. To build up or to tear down. To open hearts and minds, to receive the gospel or to close ears so that they might hear but not understand. But as we finish this series, we've heard how the Gospels penetrated heart hearts, how it's transcended cultural barriers and boundaries. It's even got to great empires and rulers and authorities of empires. They've been affected by the Gospel. And I do hope and I pray that the same Gospels penetrated our hearts and encouraged us in faith and has brought times of refreshing to our souls. As Paul writes in Philippians, another letter that he wrote here in Rome, that what we've been hearing, I pray that that too has really served to advance the gospel. That's what Paul says, his imprisonment has served to advance the gospel. And I pray that many of us, having become confident in the Lord, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. It would sadden me if we've come all the way through this 
and not have the gospel affect us in some way or another. Not have something of the gospel power alive and at work in our own hearts and lives, personally and as a church. I actually trust it has, and in some cases I know it has. May the word of God never be bound among us, but continue to be proclaimed without hindrance. And may it be heard and received with faith and joy. Amen.